following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. Are you making progress toward the kingdom of heaven? And how do you measure that progress? Oh, we know how to measure if we're advancing in our career because we move up in responsibilities and we have increased pay. We know how to measure our age. We live in linear time, and so our our birth date was on certain date, and our final day of life will be on another date. And we measure our way as we move through that linear time by marking our birthdays, marking off how much time we have used in the years or days or months that God has given to us. We know how to measure our education. I graduated from the eighth grade, and then I graduated from high school, and then I graduated from college, and then I had my graduate degree. So we mark off, and then continuing education, and we carefully monitor our progress professionally with our education. So how do you measure whether or not you're making progress in this walk with Jesus Christ. I want to suggest to you that one of the reasons this is a very difficult question is that most of us have simply brought the Christian faith into our lives to supplement an already full life. So if I were to say to you, how do I measure my progress in going to Wegmans Grocery Store? I'd say, what are you talking about? I go to Wegmans Grocery Store when I need to buy groceries. How am I going to measure my experience of going to Wegmans Grocery Store? And when I need to have inspiration, I need fellowship, I go to church. I listen to the preacher. I listen to the wonderful music. I give some tithe and offering, and then I go home and I live my life. It's impossible to measure Christian growth in that kind of a paradigm. You, you simply can't do it. This whole book that we've been sharing together, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan is making a statement, a very bold statement. He's saying that you mark your Christian life by leaving behind the city of destruction. He is defining the city of destruction as the world, as worldliness, as love of darkness. And he's making progress until he finally reaches the celestial city, first by turning his back on all worldliness, and then secondly, he measures his progress by talking about those experiences that Christian has as he's confronted by the devil 
and the devil or Apollyon tries to turn him from the path, or he meets men and women in the world who try to turn him from the path, but he remains on that straight and narrow path. What is your progress toward the kingdom of God? Have you made progress toward the kingdom of God? Now, we might measure it in terms of maturity. That might be a helpful indicator. But certainly, we're not going to enter into the kingdom of God based on being completely mature. I know that when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a lot of growing up to do. So how do we begin to look at the Christian life as a journey? And I'm reminded in speaking of this, of Jonathan Edwards, that wonderful man of God who wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached it at his church, and there was no spiritual response, preached it in another church, and the great revival broke out that absolutely changed the face of the Americas. Why was it of no effect in his own home church? Well, his grandpa was a pastor of that church prior to his becoming pastor. And his grandpa was upset that the church was not growing as it should. And so he decided to bring in the half-converted. That's what they were called, the half-converted. The half-converted were those who said they were followers of Jesus Christ, but they did not demonstrate it in the way they lived. They still loved the things of the world. They still engaged in worldly practices. They were not consistent in their attendance at church. And yet when someone died in the family, they wanted the pastor to come, and they wanted a Christian burial for their loved one. And when it was time to have their children baptized, they wanted to be able to bring their children and have them baptized by the church. And they also wanted to be able to be married in the church. And Jonathan Edwards' grandfather said, we should bring into the church these half-converted, and we should afford them all of the benefits of the church. As soon as Jonathan Edwards became the pastor of the congregation, he dismissed from the church all of the half-converted. And that caused an uproar in the congregation. And then some young people became sexually involved in some manner. And he brought them from the pulpit. He brought them forward in the service and rebuked them publicly and demanded that they repent. And the parents were very influential in the church. And they had Jonathan Edwards dismissed as the pastor of that congregation. He went then to a very humble ministry where he tutored Indian children, native Indian children. And he was there when the Lord called him to be the president of Princeton University, which was a school raised up 
to train godly men and women to serve Jesus Christ. Now, you can tell after he left as president, the half-converted rushed in, and then the unconverted rushed in, and today it's an unconverted pagan school. But there was a day when Princeton was a godly center of power for the gospel. But let's go back in his book. He speaks about religious experience. And he says, if, if I am on a journey and I stop overnight at a luxurious hotel and it's a very pleasant accommodation, do I say to my spouse, honey, let's just stop our journey and let's stay right here. This is a very comfortable hotel. This would make a wonderful home for us. Let's just stay right in this hotel. He says, no, you would not say that. Because in the morning when you arise, you know you have a destination. And so you thank the hotel for their wonderful service and their comfortable accommodations. You pay your bill, and then you go back on the road because you have a destination you're going to. And he said this is similar to following Jesus Christ. He said the half-converted have settled in the hotel. And they're not making any progress toward heaven. See, my, my question today is a, is a perhaps a painful and difficult question for you. How do you measure the progress you're making toward heaven? And many of you would have to say, well, I don't know. And then you would have to be very honest and say, I don't think I'm making much progress toward heaven. I'm making progress with my career. I'm making progress with my retirement fund. I'm making progress with the new car that I want to purchase. I'm making progress in a number of areas in my life, but progress toward heaven? Aren't I just saved and then I live my life? Well, no. No. You don't settle in the hotel called the earth, the world. You have a destination. And that's what John Bunyan is saying in Pilgrim's Progress. You have a destination. You need to make progress toward that destination. I want to share with you some questions that John Wesley asked to help in this process. And he had what he called a class meeting. And in that meeting, he would ask each person in attendance, these four questions. And most of the time in the class meeting would be taken up sharing these answers to these four questions. You may want to jot them down. They're very helpful in determining what progress you're making toward heaven. The first question, what known sins have you committed since we last met? And if there is such, what shall we do about your sin? You see, sin is not just an individual matter to John Wesley. It's something that concerns the whole body of Christ. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You're part of a body. If the arm is hurting, the whole body's hurting. If the toe is hurting, the whole body's hurting. Sin makes us hurt. 
So Wesley began his class meetings with what known sins have you committed since we last met? Well, now as you begin to share the answer to that question, you begin to share your journey toward the eternal city. You begin to mark what progress you're making as you move toward the celestial city. And if one man says, I've gone back to pornography this week, well, then the question is, what has caused you to do that? What were the circumstances around your life that caused you to return to that pornography? Or if someone says, I went back to my drugs this week, I smoked pot, or I, I did coke, I went back to my drug, or I went back to my pharmaceutical drugs, then the question is, what's happening in your life What are the circumstances of your life that opened the door for you to walk into this sin? You see, immediately now we're talking about the concrete reality of your behavior and are you making progress toward heaven? And now there is an accountability that week by week you will have as you examine the questions and you look at your life. The second question, what temptations have you faced this week? Describe any attack of the devil on your life. You see, when you begin to measure your Christian life, it's always measured in terms of, am I still committing sin against God? Now, some of you have taken the Kool-Aid of the modern church that says, oh, I'm a sinner and I'm always going to be a sinner and I can't overcome my sin. I'm going to read a scripture in just a minute that will show you the utter folly of that. But when you begin to speak about, okay, this is what I did, this is the circumstance around which this sin was encircled, And the group then can begin to pray with you and pray for you. Now you have a marker for the next week to know whether or not you've made progress in that week. When you begin to speak about, this is how the devil has attacked me this week. I had a conversation last night with a a dear friend. And this friend said to me, the devil has been attacking me with all kinds of lies causing me to question my position in Jesus. And as I spoke with this dear friend about those questions and about the lies the devil was speaking, it became very apparent that this was simply an all-out attack against this person's heart that they would, in discouragement, turn from the journey toward the celestial city. But rather than doing that, they lifted their hands up to Jesus and began to praise him because they knew the devil was lying to them, that their heart was clean before God, that they were not doubting the Lord God of heaven, 
and they were able to gain the victory. This is often the content of my conversation with those who are in journey with me toward the celestial city. We talk about the attacks of the enemy, and we talk about whether we were successful in turning it back or whether we were taken down by it. This conversation makes me very sensitive to any attack that the enemy is going to make on my life. Now, the third question, how were you delivered from these temptations? Tell your story. Well, now you have a story of victory, and your victory encourages another brother and sister because this journey is primarily about overcoming all sin, walking clean before God, and then reaching out with love to a brother, to a sister, to a stranger, to a pagan, and bringing them along with you on the journey. And so one of the questions that I often ask, have you shared the gospel with anyone yet today? And what happened when you shared the gospel? Did they receive it? What happened? When will, you, when will your next contact be with that person? I have friends that I'm very carefully sharing the gospel with who are not Christians. Sometimes I can't talk very much. Sometimes it's just acts of love and mercy, concern for their welfare. But as time goes by and the relationship grows, they allow me to share what is most sacred to my heart, and that is the glorious crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that he rose from the grave, and that he now stands at the right hand of the Father, and his blood will break every bondage and set a person free. Now that's the good news of the gospel. And so in this journey, I mark my progress by the number of people I'm able to share and witness to and see them come into relationship with Jesus Christ and join the company of believers as we make progress together toward the celestial city. The fourth question, what have you thought, said, or done of which you're uncertain whether it was sin or not? If so, tell us, and we will help you decide. So if there's something going on in your life, and you're uncertain about whether it is sin or not, share that with a brother or sister in Christ and ask them to pray with you about whether this is sin. And then answer the question, okay, what shall we do about it? It's not what shall you do about it, it's what shall we do about it. In other words, we're in this walk together. And our whole time and energy is consumed as we talk together about the progress we're making in Jesus Christ, specifically in terms of 
Are we walking in any known sin? Are we walking clean before God? And have we been empowered by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with others? This is the sweet topic of conversation that I converse with my friends over. My friends often say, Pastor Ray, you always ask me questions. Well, that's true. I ask questions of everyone I meet because it's only with curiosity that I've found I can begin to get under the American layer of self-sufficiency and arrogance and begin to really talk about the real heartfelt issues. I've discovered that people like to talk with someone who will listen and who will ask questions and who will be interested. And so I come asking you the question today, are you making progress toward the celestial city? Or have you been diverted off the path and you're lost in some kind of tangle? Now I find it very interesting that Years later, Evan Roberts, well-known leader of the Welsh Revival, had four sets of principles, four directions that he said were an absolute necessity if a, if a person was going to experience revival. The first, confess Every known sin, my sin. Have you done that? Are there secret sins in your life that only you know about? Or are there sins in your life that others also know about that you need to simply confess and make right before God? Number two, put aside every doubtful habit. Well, we could name some doubtful habits, couldn't we? There are habits of, of eating, of, of drinking. I'm astonished when I see the number of sodas that people drink. And drinking soda is a very doubtful habit. It destroys your body. The sugar intake causes cancer. It causes heart problems. Most diseases in America today are lifestyle diseases. Those are doubtful habits that we have that in Christ have to be confessed and have to be cast off. Gluttony. Gluttony is a very, very doubtful habit and one that must be dealt with. And every person has to define for themselves whether they're eating in order to live and serve Christ or whether they're living to eat for pleasure, to satisfy some desire in their heart. There are other doubtful habits. Video games are certainly a doubtful habit. We raise our children to play Angry Birds. Well, it's entertaining, but it's a doubtful habit. It's not one that will help your child 
It's not one that will add any value to his soul or to his life. Instead, it simply cheapens time and teaches a child how to waste time. It's not surprising that the Puritans were death on wasting time. And today, many doubtful habits while away our time so that we're ignorant of the Scriptures and we don't read them and we don't devour them. In my own life, I've struggled with this. As a young boy, my father would always say to me, Ray, come and sit with me while we read the Scriptures. He always, in the morning and in the evening, would sit down in his big chair, open his Bible, and he would read for several hours. But I found the Scriptures quite boring. And Mother, on the other hand, would take me to the library and would help me select exciting novels. And so I grew up devouring the Hardy Boys novel set, and many other novels, science fiction, drama, mystery novels. So I I grew up with a taste for lies. My, My grandfather died reading his novels. My mother, as she lay in a nursing home, spent all of her time reading romance novels. Christian romance novels, even. But what did they profit her? And so I've had to struggle with this issue of reading novels. And this is a doubtful habit that I've had to put away and say, When my heart is hurting, when I'm bored, I'm not going to go to the doubtful habits. Instead, I'm going to go to Jesus. I'm going to sit in his presence. I'm going to read his word. And I'm going to wait upon him. I got caught in another doubtful habit. I began every morning as soon as I would get up out of bed spend a few minutes in prayer, and then quickly go to the computer to check the latest news and perhaps spend 15, 20, even 30 minutes catching up on the news of the morning. Then I would go to the scriptures and begin to read. And I discovered that I had a hard time keeping my attention on the scriptures because my mind was full of of what the news was reporting. That was a doubtful habit. And so now when I arise early in the morning, I don't go to the computer. Instead, I go into my prayer closet and I open the scriptures and I begin to read. You have to identify what are the doubtful habits in your life that stand between your heart and Jesus. Things that are not necessarily wrong, they're just doubtful habits. 
And Evan Roberts would say that the Holy Spirit will never come until you put aside every doubtful habit. Number three, he said you must obey the Holy Spirit promptly. As soon as the Holy Spirit puts a check in your spirit, stop. Don't go there. Treat it like a red light. There's danger. And so, even as I'm driving, the Holy Spirit will put a check in my spirit, and I'll slow way down, and I'll see what the traffic conditions are, because the Holy Spirit is warning me that something is coming. And sure enough, I'll come over the brow of a hill, and there will be an accident, or I'll see some evidence. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just wants me to slow down, because if I continue at that rate of speed, the devil has set up an accident for me. So obey the Holy Spirit promptly. When he tells me to speak, I speak. When he tells me to keep quiet, I keep quiet. I want to move only at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So Evan Roberts would say, obey the Holy Spirit promptly, quickly. Number four, he says, revival will not come until you begin to confess Jesus Christ publicly. What's he mean? He means that with your family and your friends, you openly confess that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that you are on the journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, that all of your energy and all of your time and all of your money is dedicated to this journey to successfully make it to heaven. So, today, what progress are you making toward heaven? Can you measure it? I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel, We meet in Woodbridge, Virginia, and I want to welcome you to come on Easter Sunday. We would love to have you join us. Go to nationalprayerchapel.com, and you'll find directions there with a map for coming to the National Prayer Chapel, or email me. You can email me at pastorray at nationalprayerchapel.com. That's pastorray at nationalprayerchapel.com, all one word. Have you considered these issues? Are you able to measure your progress toward heaven? Are you on the road? Are you on the narrow path? Are you making progress? I come and do this broadcast day by day, Pilgrim's Progress, because, yes, it's a story, but it's, it's more than entertainment. We're here to do serious business and make our way to the celestial city. I forget about and lay aside the politics of the day, even the events of the day. I want nothing to hinder me in this journey that I make toward heaven. I'm not willing to let circumstances influence that journey. I'm going to lift up my hands without accusation against God or my brother and sister. And I'm going to follow this narrow path. I was talking to a friend who 
says he is not a Christian. I asked, what church were you raised in? He answered, the Salvation Army. He understands the gospel. He's caught in this world. Many like that are caught in this world. It's time that we make a very clear statement by the love and compassion of our life, by the directness of our conversation, and by the righteousness we demonstrate moment by moment, the integrity that we demonstrate moment by moment, that we are on our way to the celestial city. Let me read a scripture for you. It's found in the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. See, the Apostle Paul, or the writer of the book of Hebrews, also looked at the Christian life as a journey, as a race. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. So on this journey that we're sharing together, Pilgrim's Progress, are you a pilgrim? Are you journeying as Christian is? toward this celestial city. Let's begin today our reading on page 98. I know many of you are listening and wondering in your heart, how do I stand with Jesus? I've said and shared with you many disturbing things on this radio broadcast. And right now we're still very comfortable, but soon we will no longer be comfortable. Gas is going to go higher. Homes are dropping in value. They say there's a recovery, but there is not really a recovery. They're simply printing money and pumping it in and devaluing the dollar even more. I was noticing this morning that in Greece, there are some cities in Greece today where thousands of people are living on 200 euros a month or less. Can you imagine? 200 euros to live on for the month. You know how they're feeding their children? 
They're going to the restaurants out back in their garbage cans and finding food for their children. They're getting in dumpsters to get food to keep their kids from starving to death. We're going to see that in America. We're already seeing the first signs. I'm here in Woodbridge, and I could take you right now to places where tents are set up in the woods, and people have been living in the woods around Woodbridge now for quite some time, struggling, panhandling, people who used to make eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand dollars a year. They've lost their jobs, they've lost their homes, they've lost their cars, and now they're in the woods in a tent, trying to figure out how they're going to how they're going to live, how they're going to have enough food to eat. Shelters are full. Food banks are stretched to the limit. It's coming. I urge you to be true to Jesus Christ. Page 98. In the new light of day, Christian realized how treacherous how treacherous the first part of his journey through the valley of the shadow of death had been. But it would not compare to the dangers that lay before him, which he had yet to travel. That's a startling statement. There were demons, there were pits, there were snares, there were traps. There was all kind of danger in this valley of the shadow of death that he's just passed through. But now Bunyan is saying there are much more difficult times coming for this man, Christian. As Christian reviewed the path ahead, he saw that it was full of pits and pitfalls and deep holes and snares and traps, false paths that led down to the pit. Christian realized What a mercy it was to have the light of day. For had it still been dark, he would never in a thousand lifetimes have been able to safely reach the end of his journey through the valley of the shadow of death. So as Christian watched the sun rising, he said, His candle shines upon my head, and by his light I walk through the darkness was in this light that Christian came to the end of the valley. And now Bunyan says, I saw in my dream that at the end of this valley lay blood and bones and ashes and the mangled bodies of men, even of some pilgrims who had gone this way before. And while I was musing about what had caused this carnage, I spied a cave where two giants, Pope, and pagan lived in the olden days. It was their power and tyranny that had cruelly put to death the men whose bones, blood, ashes, and mangled bodies I beheld. Christian went by this place without much danger, which made me wonder. But I have since learned that pagan had been dead for a long time. As for the other... Even though he is still alive, his advanced age and the many skirmishes of his younger days have caused him to grow crazy and stiff in his joints. 
Now he can do little more than sit in the cave's mouth, grinning at pilgrims as they go by and biting his nails because he can no longer capture and destroy them. I want to stop just for a moment there. John Bunyan may have thought that the pagans had all died and that they were no longer threatening the Christians. But it's obvious that's not really his meaning because he spent 12 years in jail because the pagans put him there. They were pagan Christians. They were of the state church. But I want to tell you today, the pagans are alive and real and they are murdering Christians at an alarming rate in the Sudan, in Saudi Arabia. They're murdering Christians in Vietnam, in China. Christians are being slaughtered in alarming numbers all over the world. And even here in America, paganism has risen up so that now you cannot pray in the name of Jesus in many settings. They want you instead to pray to the, oh, the great spirit of the air, the spirit that surrounds us. They're praying to Mother Earth. They're pagans. So paganism is rising with an alarming power to block Christians from the marketplace. And then he refers to the Pope, there are still Christians being persecuted today by the Roman Catholic Church, particularly in South and Central America and in other parts of the world. Now, I recognize and know many, many wonderful Christian men and women who belong to the Catholic Church as members. But I do want to say that in coming days, I believe we will see rising up this papal power once more. And I believe we will see it joined together in an unholy relationship with governments and pagan powers who once more persecute those true Christians who follow Jesus Christ. He says, so I saw in my dream that Christian went right by the old man sitting in the mouth of the cave. But as he passed, the old man poked his head out of his cave and snarled, more like you must be burned. Christian held his peace and passed by the wretched old man without any difficulty. Now, as Christian went on his way, he came to a little upward slope that had been put there for the purpose of helping pilgrims see what lay ahead of them. Christian ascended the slope, and looking from the height, he saw Faithful just ahead of him on his journey. Then called Christian aloud, Hello? Hello? Wait right there. I will come to you, and we will be companions on this journey. Hearing this, Faithful looked behind him and saw Christian, who cried out again, Stay, stay, so I can catch up with you. But Faithful answered, No, I'm fleeing for my life, and the avenger of blood is behind me. 
he's right. We don't wait for husband or wife to follow Jesus. We don't wait for a friend or a neighbor or children to follow Jesus. We flee for our life. We pursue Jesus. And any who would come with us are welcome to make the journey, but we will not put on hold our walk with Jesus so that another could perhaps catch up. It doesn't work that way. Hearing this, Christian gathered his strength and ran with all of his might in order to catch up with Faithful. Soon he had not only caught up with Faithful, but he had run past him a little ways, so that the last became the first. Then he turned and proudly smiled at Faithful, feeling smug about overtaking him. At that moment, Christian stumbled and fell to the ground with such force that it left him unable to rise to his feet until Faithful came and helped him up. Then I saw in my dream that they went on together with brotherly affection, brotherly affection for each other, and had many pleasant conversations about all the things that had happened to them on their pilgrimage. My honored friend, Christian said to his brother, faithful, I am glad that I've overtaken you and that God has done a work in both our spirits so that we can walk as companions on this pleasant path. Faithful said, I would have liked to have enjoyed your company from the beginning of the journey, but you left earlier than I did, and I was forced to come this far all alone. How did you stay in the city of destruction? How long did you stay there before you finally decided to follow me? Until I could stay no longer, Faithful answered. For there was a lot of talk after you left that our city would in a short time be burned down to the ground with fire from heaven. Really? Your neighbor said that? Yes, and for a while it was all everyone talked about. Really? And why are you the only one who left to escape the danger? Well, like I said, there was a lot of talk about it, but I didn't think anyone really believed it. And even when the topic was on everyone's lips, I heard some speak very negatively about your desperate journey, as some of them called it. But I believed it, and I still believe that our city will one day be destroyed by fire and brimstone from above. And that is why I made my escape. You see, you will never choose to escape the world if you believe that you're saved in the midst of the world and Jesus' blood covers you and you're safe and you don't have to worry. You're fat and happy. You have your wonderful Jesus as your little rabbit's foot that you can stroke for good luck. You have your sentimental Jesus that you love even as you walk in the midst of your sin. One dear sister said to me, I can't accept what you're saying. Jesus loves me unconditionally. I know he loves me unconditionally, and I'm saved. 
but I'm a sinner, and I'm always going to be a sinner. I can't overcome these sins in my life, but Jesus has me covered. When Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees his blood. There was no way I could talk with this dear friend. Our conversation ended. As long as you believe these lies, you will dwell in the city of destruction. And to your great sorrow on that day, when Jesus comes and he judges your life, you'll be cast into darkness. You will not be saved. Only those who take this journey, who go through the narrow gate, who deny themselves, who take up their cross and are crucified, only those who have all sin removed from their heart, rebellion, deliberate sin that rises up, that says, I want my way, until all of that is removed from your heart by the blood of Jesus. You're in grave danger of the fires of hell. Until you begin to have that sense in your heart, until you have that fear in your heart, you're not going to follow Jesus. You're going to attend church at a Broadway church. You know what I mean by a Broadway church? It's all about the song and dance. There's no conviction here. We don't speak about sin on Broadway. We don't do anything but give you wonderful, wonderful words of encouragement and tell you this is your day. You can be everything you desire to be. You can have wealth and prosperity. You're God's kid. He loves you unconditionally. Can I tell you a secret? Never in all of the scriptures does it ever say that God loves us unconditionally. The scriptures say God loves us unfailingly, not unconditionally. That there's a there's a profound difference. God loves us with such love and such compassion and such mercy that he sent Jesus to die on Calvary for us. Jesus loved us enough to die, and he provided the blood to take away our sin, to wash us and make us clean. He has in every way unfailingly loved us and provided for us. He has not unconditionally loved us. Because if we spurn his gift, if we reject his offer, we will be cast into hell. So how is it with you today? How do you stand with Jesus? I invite you to email me at pastorray at nationalprayerchapel.com and tell me some of your story. Go to nationalprayerchapel.com and you can find there where we meet for Sunday. I'd love to have you join us. Until tomorrow, we'll see you again. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with 
This is Tracy Weaver.